Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Brent Jensen Music, and on Twitter at Real B Jensen. No Sleep Till Sudbury is brought to you by Pry Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at pryapickups.com. All right, this week we have a special guest talking to me about a special project that he and I are working on together. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Rob Pruce. Rob Pruce, my brother, how are you, sir? I'm very well. I'm a little bit uh, sweaty because I just came in from a run, <laughs> but I'm good. It's a good thing we're not doing video then. I, that's why I was making sure we weren't. <laughs> <laughs> now, you are back in Queens, New York. And uh, I'm still in Toronto. I've seen you. Um, I've had the good fortune of seeing you a couple times over the last little while, and most in recently the last, in the last two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Most recently with performing with Carol Pope in Rough Trade at the Elma Combo yes. in Toronto. That was last Saturday night. Yes. Oh now, my God! It was only it's only a couple of days ago. Yeah. Right. So so that was yeah. that was funny because you've been here twice in the last little while. You drove up from Queens yep. and it, we talked about now. Oh, I didn't ask you this. Did you drive up through the Adirondacks or did you drive up the other way? No, I did the other way. I did the way up around, uh, Syracuse, Binghamton, like up towards and then crossed by um, Niagara Falls. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's my preferred method. I should, I know we've talked about the other way and I feel like I should try it sometime and just see what the experience is like. You got to try it, man. I know. Yeah. It's really great. I love it. Just going through the mountains is, is fantastic, especially this time of year. The leaves are starting to fall. Right. I'm actually planning maybe sometime this fall to go up to Montreal for a weekend. So I'll get to do basically most of that same drive anyways, mm -hmm. because I think you go up that way to get to Montreal too. You do, actually. It's just an hour away from where I turn in to the States. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. So the last time you were here, Rough Trade, what a show. That was so great. Was it good? Oh, God. It you know, it's funny because you said don't. I don't stand in front of me because you're going to make me nervous. And I actually, I was supposed to stand at the other end of the venue. I usually like stand just in the back. Right. But, yep. um, it was, it was packed. So I didn't want to kind of get hemmed in in the back. So I actually moved over. Um, and I ended up right in front of you, but you didn't even, you didn't even notice until the end of the show. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't look up one time or I didn't look out and I'm sort of glad because I, if I'd seen you, then I would have been, I know I wouldn't have been more nervous, but I would have laughed because yeah, <laughs> like just seeing people makes me go, Oh yeah, I'm just up here doing this stupid thing that I always do. And it's just weird <laughs> when I see people I know, I don't know. It's bizarre, but it was so much fun. Wasn't it great? The, the crowd, the crowd loved it. And, and it was funny. I told you after the show that Carol kept looking over at you to your, cause you were the only guy really on that side of the stage and, and she kept looking over to you and, and she would smile, you know, she's very happy to have you there, but it's funny cause you were all business. You were like, focused. I know <laughs> I, I was like the new kid on the block, right? Like, and I, I was looking last night at the set list and I, I learned 17 songs in a pretty short amount of time, which like they've done some gigs together, the other guys in the band. And, and so I was sort of like, you know, filling in for Kevin Hearn because he's played with them as well. Mm -hmm. But it, but I didn't want to say no, and it scared the crap out of me, but I was so excited to learn the songs. But I just had to pay attention because I thought, man, this is like, I hadn't done it before. So I just wanted to get it all right. And even for me, when I'm paying attention and when I look like I'm like really seriously, like, you know, that's still super fun for me. But there were times like sometimes I had to sort of take it in because 
I would just look over right beside me and there's Kevin Staples playing his keyboard. Right. Mm -hmm. And I look over and there's Carol. And I just thought, I just can't believe I'm doing this. Like I, because I didn't want to linger in that thought for too long because that part of it is me as like a 14 or 15 year old. Like you, when I would, when I just joined the spoons and we were getting ready to make our first album and rough trade were, you know, getting all the airplay with um, all touch, no contact and all those songs. And, and I would listen to their records and think, oh, my God, we're going to make a record. And, and like, I have this Rough Trade record and we're going to have a piece of vinyl soon, too. And, like, I would listen to it and listen carefully to, like, all the keyboard overdubs. So it was really, like, one of my foundational kind of things to start paying attention technically to how, how music is, is arranged in a way. Oh, so, wow. So, like, to, to be playing with them and sort of remembering these songs, it was, like, a kind of, it was freaky and fun. And, like, I'm approaching it now, like, as a, as a professional musician. So I understand it in a different way, but I could I can't help but sort of tap into that that like innocence about it all too, which I love. Which is great. I love that. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah. That's awesome. And the band was so good too. Like oh. playing with those guys, they're amazing. I'm telling you, man, the sound was fantastic. It was so crisp. It was perfectly balanced. Um, that you could hear everybody. And uh the the band was crack. Like it was you guys were super tight. Thank you. We only had one rehearsal. I mean, they, the rhythm section, they played together. Right. So, but we just got together on Friday and like, we spent a long, we had a long day of rehearsal, but it was fantastic. But you know, one other thing I must say about, but the new, you know, Elma combo, mm -hmm. it is like state of the art sound in that place. Like I think oh, yeah. that's part of the appeal. The sound system for mixing on the floor for the audience is amazing. They've got the recording set, set up upstairs as well, which mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And uh, Doug McClement, who was who was running the the recording part part of it all, I've known him for years. He used to do live recordings for Much Music and for radio broadcasts and stuff. And we've we've done so many things together, and it was amazing to see him again. But he sort of took me through like a little behind the scenes of how the place was put together, as far as like the, the type of flooring that they use and the the art on the walls that is helping sound absorption and stuff. And it's just amazing. That's cool. Things you wouldn't necessarily think about, right? Yeah. yeah but when they were building it they had that in mind because they wanted it to sound so good so i think the thing now is that it's a little underutilized like like some people were saying like they just need to book more stuff like i think it's still ramping up i think they're still getting it you know the world is still sort of coming back as well yeah. and it's just amazing to know that this place is here when people start start having ideas of things to bring into it and and they start reaching out for more more ways to to utilize it as well it's going to be so cool oh for sure it will be Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a good crowd Saturday night, so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they're well on their way. Definitely. Yeah. Now, you and I, my friend, are working on a very cool little project together. And while I'm not going to divulge all of the details, per se, uh, until we're ready to, to put it out there, it's going to get you out in front of more audiences, in a performing yes. capacity again. And you're very excited about that. Right. Am I? So, so <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be, it could be really cool. So there's a, there's a lot of really no, cool surprises. Um, there's some very notable special guests potentially. And, and this is an idea that we talked about like five years ago and just kind of the, the background I think is pretty funny. So you and I had met in New York and it was like Columbus circle, I think. And, uh, we, we had a cup of coffee and I was, I was on my way to uh, lunch with, with, uh, one of the guys from Twisted Sister. That was pretty funny, but we connected and I was very appreciative of the fact that you actually came to see me and we had a great chat. 
and we we talked about this idea and you had asked me you know and and kind of conveyed to me some stuff that you wanted to do and I said hey you know what you could probably do this and then uh I want to say three months ago four months ago that was five years ago but three months ago recently you sent me a text and you said can I talk to you and I was like oh is this dire like what's going on you said, I want to I want to like get on the phone with you because I want to talk to you about something and I said yeah absolutely so we had a call and you said remember what we talked about five years ago and I said yeah yeah because we talked about it a little bit in the in the interim yeah but you said do you want to do it let's do it I want to do it and I was like oh yeah, yeah. buddy and uh and, and we're into it now. Yep, we're getting into it. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. And again, I don't want to explain exactly what it is, but what it does mean is that Rob Proust is going to be out there performing in front of people. And uh, today, uh, in the spirit of No Sleep Till Sudbury and songs that make your skin vibrate, you uh, sent me a couple songs that might get played during the uh, course of, of what we're about to do. That's right. It's a journey through music. and. Yeah, you're funny because you're so right about the that it was our very first time meeting it was five years ago, right? And, mm-hmm. and we you 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 sort of proposed it to me at that point, and I, you're right. Um, and I think as the time has gone on, in the subsequent time, it has been something that has been bubbling in my mind, and and I have been thinking about, and you know, life gets in the way of like sort of trying to realize dreams, which is a thing that I think happens to everybody as your life goes on. Mm-hmm. And you know, you do things and you make plans and you have other plans and at some point you have to sort of like just buckle down and do a thing and i think with with this for me i just got to the point of saying i i, I don't want to put it off anymore because it's a part of me that i feel like i really need to to get going so mm-hmm. you're right it's it's i think it's going to be really good and i'm so glad that you're on the journey <laughs> because because uh i need a co-pilot and you are my co-pilot i am extremely grateful and honored to be a part of this yeah, it's it, we're gonna have a really really good time with this. I think it's gonna be awesome, and I think people are are gonna love it. So I can't wait to get it out there. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're being so cagey. We're being so we're, because we're not just saying we're gonna just go and play some shows and whatever we're gonna do, but because basically that's kind of what it is, right? But it's just for me, it's a little. It's I I think the reason that I've always held off on it is because I think well I'm not really like a front man. I'm not a lead singer. I've always been a part of a of a band. Mm-hmm. And like a like a, a collaborator with people, and like even being a music director for musicals and stuff, that's also in the capacity of leading the band for the singers or whatever. But I guess I've always realized that I still have something to share of my own mm-hmm. that could be like not a front man, but like like the 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 host of the evening. I guess you could say, right? Yes, exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I'm super excited. That's that's just one of the reasons why I think this is so great. I'm I'm genuinely excited about it. It's just such a great feel-good story all around, and this is going to be fantastic. Now, uh, you had you you actually created a Spotify playlist of the songs that um, may or may not be included in this project at any point, uh, and they are all instrumental. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, do I want- don't normally. I I mean I know your lists are good with um, when we've done it before. I've been more. Uh, free range sort of thinking of songs you know mm-hmm. um but we've done we've done sort of thematic things as well right like with halloween and stuff too that was fun but yeah I, I yeah and i think i've always wanted to do an instrumental because i mean i i have hundreds of songs that you know instrumental music is classical music it's it's easy listening music it's it's the instrumentals on on rock records it's whatever and i think 
it's it's like a world of its own. And so I thought it'd be fun to just pick some for you and I to talk about as well. But yeah, there are some songs that I've always thought, God, if I ever do like a like a show of my own, what would it be, and what kind of music would I would do? And I've always thought I just want to play music that I love and that that other people love because I know we all sort of love the same kinds of things, you know. So so this was just like a like a little sampling of some of them, you know. But you're right, some of them may or may not make it in, but maybe who knows? Well, we'll see. We're gonna find out. Everybody will find out soon enough. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Uh, the first one is and and by the way, you've got seven. But because it's such I know, a cool project, <laughs> no, no, hey man, I'm 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 all about it. It's good. Uh, Trade wins by Spoons is yes. the first one. I've heard of them. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had to include a, a Spoons tune as an instrumental because well, actually, we had an instrumental on our first album as well, which is a super cool thing. I totally forgot I could have put that on my list, but it's okay. We only need one Spoons tune because that's me. Mm-hmm. Um, but Trade Winds was the opening track of our second album, Arias and Symphonies, mm-hmm. which in another month is celebrating its 40th anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. That is. Thank you. Crazy. Um, and this, so this song was our opening when, when we did gigs, when we did live shows. This we would play on a, on a track and then we would come out to this. This is like our theme music almost, you know? Cool. Um, so, so this would be the song when the lights would go down and the dry ice would start pouring out to choke everybody and <laughs> we'd be ready to go on stage. And this would be the thing that would be playing because on the album, it segues, the next song it segues into is, is smiling in winter. Mm-hmm. So it was the perfect like live intro as well. Right. And it was super exciting for us. Um, so we never actually played the song live. We played it in the, we, Gord came up with it. Like the, the basic idea of the song, probably when we were like, like, a little bit in pre-production for the album and he was like i got this idea for an instrumental and we kept it pretty basic because we said we'll just fill it out in the studio which we really did because we basically went in um our producer john laid down the drum machine and then and then we did the basic tracks derek played his drums and then i spent like an evening with john like layering all these synthesizer parts like gordon sort of got bored and left too and it was like just me and john in the studio and for me it was heavenly it was heavenly because that's like it was just fun to kind of layer it up and john was sort of like pushing me to say like you know okay now try this part and overdub let's add another layer of this or whatever Hmm. so it ended up being like a a really kind of cool thing but i've always wanted to play it in a live capacity as well so i've definitely thought you know for my project it's something i would want to do a, a variation or a version of that's awesome yeah so I'm, I'm looking forward to that as a fan. Cool. That's great. Oh, yeah, I'm good. That's great. Uh, next is Whale by Split Ends. For people who know Split Ends and they know this song, it's just a crazy instrumental. I mean, it's one of those things that people did in the 80s, you know, especially for a band when, when you've got a bunch of players together. And, and you, I mean, for Split Ends, they had a couple of lead singers as well. The two brothers, you know, Tim and Neil singing, you know, sort of trading off as well. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure uh, Tim was still in the band at that point. I think so. Because at some point he left. He, um, yeah. But I, I do remember him leaving, but then I thought he came back too. But He totally did come back as well. You're right. Because then, of course, then because because Neil, I think maybe, I don't know. I don't remember the circumstances of him leaving or whatever, but this instrumental i it's like from an album that i sort of forget about sometimes and when i come back to it and i i heard this recently in the summertime and i thought god this is it's just fun energetic kind of crazy quirky sort of new wave it reminds me of talking heads a little bit as well and i just think like this is a part of my formative spoons slash new wave era you know in terms of like music that i loved and music that was inspiring me as well Mm -hmm. and 
again, I just like listen to songs and I, I listen to things that, that are meaningful to me. And I think, God, I want to play this. Like people don't get to hear this kind of music. It's not like you're going to go see, you're not going to wait for split ends to reform just to hear a song. And so I feel like I'm going to just grab music that I love and, and just play it. Like, because I want, I want to hear it. Like I want to play it and I want to hear it. Like when I was a little kid first learning pop songs, I would put the needle on the record and just play along. And that's how I learned sort of, you know, song structure and learned about keyboard parts and stuff. It was just me playing along with records as well. So yeah, and this will be a chance to do these things in real life as well. Well, you know what I like about that is that it provides insight into you as a musician and a person. Right. Yeah. Sure. All the things I love. Because <laughs> you're such a narcissist. <laughs> All See, the music I love. No, I, I, you know, people know you and I've, I've spoken to other people about this. You're like, you know, that nice guy in the industry that everybody, and, and I'll, I'll tell you something else. After the, the rough trade show, I, I waited around for you and uh, people rushed you with old spoons, vinyl <laughs> and honeymoon sweet posters. And you had, you had, you had time for everybody. And I've always known you to be so gracious and so interested in interacting and connecting with your fans. And I just think that's so fantastic. To me, that's like the most important thing after all these years. I feel like the the thing that I look most forward to is seeing people that I'm that I may know or that I may be like friends with online that I've never actually met in real life. Mm -hmm. And it's the coolest thing. I mean, I was even excited to meet uh, the guy who's who basically is running the who booked the gig, Ed Sousa. Ed, you know, is so beloved now by so many fans in Southern Ontario because he's booked these amazing shows for people to come and see. Right. Yeah. And he's got a couple of venues that he's booking into. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to just meet Ed even. And I know so many people that like the fans who are coming to all of his shows, they all know him and love him. Mm -hmm. And I totally see why. And it was so great. We've got to have dinner before the show. And some of the people that are working with him are, are people that I've been friends with on Facebook for years as well. It was great to see them in real in the real life but then for yeah like people to show up with, with old spoons vinyl and and honeymoon sweet stuff and i have there was another guy who waited for me outside after the show who didn't even get in because he was going to uh i think he went to a screening at the toronto film festival or he was at another event mm. but he waited for me at the elbow because he knew i was going to be there and he had like some spoons of vinyl like some covers to sign and he also had a poster for uh lethal weapon he wanted me to sign oh, wow. he got the guys in honeymoon suite to sign to sign the uh, like a, a film poster, and because he that's like his favorite honeymoon sweet song, and then he also had a poster for me to sign, which I I mean I laughed because I'm a little bit embarrassed to sign some things, you know. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'll sign this Bohemian Rhapsody poster, <laughs> but I mean I guess I guess I am sort of a part of the film, and the only other signature on it was this guy Jim Beach. Do you know who Jim Beach is? I've heard that name. He was like, well, he was Freddie Mercury's personal assistant, and like like a personal assistant to the band. And and his his name would be like one of the few thank yous on Queen albums. It would be like you know it would be the band and then the producer and the engineer and the the studio assistant and Jim Beach was always on there. Hmm. And so this I just was so honored like and just like freaked out to like be one of two signatures on this Bohemian Rhapsody poster. I just thought man, this is a weird weird world we live in that I'm even somehow connected to having my name on a piece of cardboard to Jim Beach, you know? See, but that, um, that, that's very cool. But that's also a fan who's really doing his homework because, you know, you were the guy who was tapped to show Remy Malek how to play piano like Freddie Mercury in their documentary. Right. Which yeah. Is cool. um, it is so cool. 
but I, I do, like I said, I realized that that connection to me has become so important over the years because it's so many years, you know, like we're talking, you know, 40 years yeah. since, since these, and actually this guy, Steve, who I signed the poster for, he saw that he saw me with the spoon at the Elma Combo 40 years ago wow. in the summer of 82 before we released. So Nova Heart was going up the charts that summer and we were recording Aries and Symphonies and we were getting ready to play the police picnic. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was going to be like a huge gig for us, right? To play at the CME Stadium with the police. Yeah. Um, and we had booked this gig at the Elma Combo, which was, I think was in June of 82. And I guess Steve said he was at that show. And the other guy that was at the show recording us was this guy, Doug, who is in the Elma Combo now today, um, like doing the the modern technology, like with the sound system and the record the, the recording setup he's got. He recorded us for Q107 or whatever it was back in 1982 as well. Wow. So it's all these all these full circle parts of my life where we were all kids, you know, like like the fans of the band, um, you know, we're buying the records and I'm I'm running into them now and and I feel like we're all coming back together to to sort of celebrate the music and. And we're making the music and I just, I feel like that's such an important part. And that comes back to like you and I sort of conceiving this, this show and this project that I want to do where I, I sort of want to just celebrate all of the music that we love, you know, me, me playing the music. And I like, it's like, I've said to you, like, I sort of joke about like, oh, I'll take requests from people because I sort of feel like I, we all love the same music. Right. And if somebody calls out a tune, then I'll be like, yeah, sure. I can try to, if I, if I know it, I'll know it. If I don't, maybe I'll play like, five seconds of it. Like the dude at the rough trade show who kept yelling out for high school confidential. Oh, yeah. I was like, you, you know, it's coming later. Like stop yelling out for it now. <laughs> no, I, I was kind of hoping that she would say, Oh, you know, we're not going to play that one tonight. <clears throat> right. That's not, exactly. that's not in the set list tonight, you know? And the funny thing that she did say was she said, you know, we have other songs. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. She's funny. Oh my God. And, and we were in, in rehearsal, we were prepared, not really prepared, but they have a song. It wasn't really a radio hit, but it was like one of their first songs. It, it was even, I think it was on their first album and it was on this live directed disc thing that they did. It was called Birds of a Feather. Mm -hmm. Super cool song. And I think Carol never really wants to do it live, but Kevin, Kevin Staples sort of was pushing a little bit. Like in rehearsal, we kind of ran, we kind of jammed it a little bit and it was so fun. And Carol's like, I don't really want to do that song. And Kevin sort of thought, when maybe if somebody yells it out, you know, maybe we'll like kind of go into it a little bit. And so, we were it was fun in rehearsal that we sort of did sort of prepare it but not really and then we ended up not doing it ah. um, but i think kevin he's sort of like me in that way i think he thought it would be, would have been sort of fun for the fans to like hear a snippet of it and we didn't end up doing it but i feel like that's sort of the way i feel about music sometimes you want to you want to feel like if the moment is right and it strikes you you just go for it because it's just fun you know like it's that's just right. music and people love that because there's no safety net, you know, it's a, that's like one of the basic tenets of rock and roll, really, right? You don't know if it's going to go off the rails or not. And that's part of the excitement. Totally. Like the Taylor Hawkins tribute, right? Like, that's oh my right. God, like six hours of flying by the seat of your pants on a stage in front of tens of thousands of people. There's nothing better than that. Exactly. Oh my God. Yep. Yeah. Uh, your next tune is uh, a Jackson in your kitchen. I hate when that happens. It's uh, <laughs> Gary Clark. What is this? I've never heard this before. What does that even mean? Uh, I wondered that too, because I know nothing about that song. And I thought a Jackson in your kitchen can't be good. Can it? Or is it? <laughs> maybe you're a Jackson's fan. I, I don't think know. Maybe. And, and I think that I, I think that after I saw that title and I did look it up and I think it meant something. And I think that now I'm remembering that, Gary Clark himself told me what it is. So here's the story about this weird song. Okay. Gary Clark 
was the lead singer in a band called Danny Wilson, mm. who I say this name to you, it means nothing to you because you'd be like, I don't know, Danny Wilson, that sounds like the name of a guy. Right. But this was the name of a band. So they were a Scottish band and they had a big hit in the summer of 87 called Mary's Prayer. Okay. So even as I, even as I described that to you, your mind is still blank mm-hmm. because maybe you don't remember that song. And whenever I see the name of the song, I think, I don't really think I know that song. And then I listen to the song and I go, oh my God, that's Mary's Prayer. Oh, now I can recognize why it's called Mary's Prayer. That's Gary Clark. So it was a Scottish band. He was the lead singer and he was the songwriter in this band. Um, I got to know him because he wrote the music for a, a film musical called Sing Street. Okay. Sing Street came out uh, sometime in the last 10 years, I want to say. And the film was written and directed by this guy named John Carney who wrote and directed the musical once, which featured songs by Glenn Hansard and won the Academy Award in uh, 2007 for Falling Slowly. And that was the the film that they then turned into a musical, which I was a part of as a music supervisor on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyways, Gary Clark, they took this film Sing Street and they decided to turn it into a musical, uh, like a stage musical. And it's actually, so we started working on it pre-COVID. I met Gary like in January of 2020, we were doing auditions for the show because it was going to be running in the theater off Broadway. Okay. Um, and so I met Gary and, and I thought it was super cool. He was a super, he was a super cool guy, super excited because he's never really been involved in like live theater. So to take his songs from the film and be having kids sing them in auditions and stuff was super exciting for him, for him. So I started, I was doing research on him and his career. And I learned about this solo album that he had done in the nineties. And he had this little solo piano piece called A Jackson in Your Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. So that's a long freaking story <laughs> to come around to say that I learned the piece of music. It's, it's like a, it's a beautiful little solo piano piece. Yeah. And when I heard it, I learned it and I played it for him in the rehearsal room. Like he was like, he was so, he was sort of touched because I told him how much I loved this, like what this piece of music meant to me. And he just thought it was super cool because he made this album ages ago and you know, he did it and he sort of forgot about it. But to me, this was like the most beautiful little piece of music. And so I said, I said to him even like two years ago, I said, I'm going to, play this thing. I'm going to like, whenever, if I ever do like a solo show, I said, I'm going to play this thing. Cause it's just a really pretty piece of music. So wow. that's what it is. That's the long story for a simple piece of music. But apparently the name of Jackson in your kitchen is related to God, some jazz band, like the art ensemble of Chicago or something. They had a song that had a similar title. And I think he, he named this little piece of music as a reference to this obscure piece of mu- like jazz music or something. Ah, uh, okay. Oh my God, this is the longest story for the shortest piece of music. <laughs> I'm going to go into this level of, when, when I do this, when we do this live show though, I'm going to go into this level of boring detail with everything. <laughs> Just to drive people, the show is going to be, the evening is going to be six hours long. It's going to be like the most tedious, like, why is he talking about these details in this song that I didn't really think I'd ever want to know, but I'll make it really interesting. And then I'll play the music and then, It'll all, it'll all make sense. Uh, you'll be like, wait, come back. There is music. Wait, <laughs> don't, right. don't leave. Where are you, where are you, where are you going? <laughs> Honestly, this is interesting. <laughs> it's like Steve Martin used to have this, this, this routine where he'd do, it would be like jokes for plumbers. And he, I don't know if you'd ever remember that. It was like the best part where he would like, like tell the joke written specifically for plumbers, joking about the, the wrench and the, having the right socket and all these things. And it's like, that's who I am. oh okay this next guy i have heard of his name is andrew lloyd weber 
And oh, the yeah. piece of music you've got here is called Entract. I learned something about this yep. from you, actually. Oh, that's right. Yes, remember that? It's the beginning of Act Two. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. I did not know that before. Yeah, it's, I, and, and the history of it, it's, I, I guess it's probably, if it's just a musical theater thing or a, a French musical theater thing, but really, it's the beginning of, it's always, so the, the uh, start of the show is always called The Overture, and then the start of Act Two is called The Entract. I mean, now, you know, today they'll call it opening of Act Two sometimes, but of course, Andrew Lloyd Webber in the 80s wanted to keep it pretty theatrical, traditional theatrical sounding. Yeah. So he called it the Entract. But I've always loved this piece of music because this is the start of Act Two. And in Phantom of the Opera, there are so many beautiful themes of music that, that are woven through the show. They come back, you know, he repeats a theme 10,000 times so that you can never forget it yeah. and it's stuck in your head, which is like what a good pop song should do. Andrew Lloyd Webber does it over the course of an entire evening, which is why some people love to hate him and some people love to love him. His melodies are beautiful and they're simple and they are they really are unforgettable. But I appreciate a thing like the entract for Phantom of the Opera because in like three minutes, oh my God, it's even shorter than that. No, it's about three minutes. But you can get through all the greatest parts of what you've just heard in Act One. And he sort of says, so the entract, the job of entract is to say, this is what we've heard so far. And we're starting here. And here we go from here. To me, it's like a super fun thing. I've played it before, like on piano, when I used to do the Phantom of the Opera, when I did the Canadian tour. And we would go into each city and we would have to do the tech rehearsal to be in the new theater and we'd bring the actors on stage and, you know, run through it all and make sure the, the camera, I mean, the spot. Uh, lighting operators know what, what their cues are and we'd have to do a tech run through of the show and we never really had to play the on track because that's just music but our conductor sometimes would make me do it just for the timing of the whole show mm -hmm. so they could so the so the understudy actors could get a sense of how much time they had backstage before act two really began and i was always i would always say yeah let me play the on track because it was my favorite thing to play because it was just like an instrumental thing so i'm i i feel like it's one of those things i probably would stick into my show, whatever, whatever my evening of music ends up being. So once in a while, it'll be fun to throw this in because it's pretty beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Well, it's a great way to welcome people back after the intermission. It's like For a little, sure. little review. Right. Okay. Here's what we know so <laughs> far. Right. Here's where we're going. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I, sh I could make up my own on track too. I can, I can <laughs> do together like spoon songs or <laughs> honeymoon sweet songs, songs and make, oh, <laughs> that's a great idea. See, it just keeps getting better and better and better. <laughs> It, it sure does. <laughs> oh, man. All right. This next one you're going to have to help me with. It's Gary Newman, but it's Trois uh -huh. Gymnopedies. Gymnopedies. Yeah. First movement. I'm never sure how to actually pronounce that word. Is yeah. that actually a word? Um, is it, well, it is. Well, is it's, it's a French it's a, word? It, you know what? I don't remember now if it actually does mean something other than it's known as a, uh, a piano composition by this French composer named Eric Satie. Mm -hmm. Eric Satie had this piece called the Gymno... I don't even know exactly how to pronounce it because I've heard many different variations on it. But he wrote these three solo piano pieces in the late 19th century, like apparently in 1888-ish, he had okay. written them. And I studied them when I was... I learned them when I was probably 13 or 14, I guess. Wow. And in the Royal Conservatory, like, like as I was going through the Royal Conservatory method, this was like my grade eight or grade nine piano. Like you'd have to learn different pieces of music from different eras of, you know, like, like the, the romantic era and the Baroque era mm -hmm. and the modern era. And so Eric Satie was coming in the era of like the sort of the French impressionists with Debussy and stuff like that. 
And I fell in love with this piece because it was so simple. I never wanted to play music that was really too hard. I, I mean, like who, I never, I knew I wasn't like wanting to be a, like a, a classical pianist in that way of like super fast flourishes and like, you know, having super <laughs> technique, like, like yeah, I didn't want to be showy. It's sort of the same reason I guess I never got into prog rock. I wasn't interested in solos mm. and I was interested in like, like, like that kind of to that degree, you know what I mean? Like, so I always veered towards music that was, challenging but not too challenging mm -hmm. but super beautiful which is i th i think the french impressionistic piano music just struck me at the right time in my life like i don't know there was something so beautiful about it and so this piece of music was something i was working on and at the same time freaking gary newman did an instrumental version of it which is this one that that is on my list it was the it was the b-side of one of his singles off of his album telecom what a weird like, coincidence what a weird what a weird coincidence and for me in the world that i was was now immersed in like like the new world of, of new wave which was becoming more electronic and more synthesized and here i am in my own classical music world learning this piece of music actually the piece that i was learning was gymnopathy number one no it was number three gary newman did number one which subsequently i've learned over the years was really kind of the more popular one because it's a little more melodic the melody is a little more memorable as well. Um, I think with my piano teacher, I was learning movement number three. But I, I mean, they're all, they're all beautiful. But yeah, so Gary Newman did this. This was the B-side of one of his singles. Wow. And, and so I freaked out because I was going to my piano teacher playing number three. And I was like, holy crap, Gary Newman did number one. So I <laughs> learned how to play it. And it was a solo piano version, but he like layered some synthesizers. I don't think he actually played the piano part. I think it was his keyboard player that did it. But Gary added the synthesizers to it as well. And it's just gorgeous. So since I was 15 or 16 years old, I was like, oh my God, I've, I've played this song and I played Gary's version of it. And I played the actually composed by Eric Satie version of it. So it's probably been in my mind all these years that like, I wanted, this is like something that I want to do is like play music that sort of merges these worlds together, you know? Yeah. Cause I know that you're a big Gary Newman fan. So that's very cool. Wow. Interesting. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Elton John is next with yep. song, for song for Guy. Yeah. Yep. Again, not again, but this is, this is, um, a song that's been in my life since, Whenever that album came out, seven? No, it came out in 78, A Single Man. So this was on his album, A Single Man. It's almost getting to the years, well, Elton's never really, I mean, if you're an Elton John fan, he had songs on the charts basically every year, right, through the 80s and, and, oh, yeah. and onwards. But I think for me, this album, A Single Man, I, was, I wouldn't say I was losing complete interest, but I was definitely broadening my horizons from the Elton John that I was in love with from 1974. So... This this instrumental was like like maybe the last song on the album or like near the end of the album. And it's just such a beautiful piece of music. He had written it for it was like a like a bike courier at the recording studio who died in a in a in a accident or something. And wow. I think he dedicated this to this kid who worked at the recording studio. I don't remember the whole story, but it's something something like that. And it's just such a beautiful piece of music. And I just thought, man, this is again like an instrumental that I just want to play. And I think I think there are, are instrumentalists over the years who've done this and it's been done because it's, it's Elton John. It's just beautiful. And I just have always had it in my, in my frame of reference for instrumentals that I would love to do. Elton had a few instrumentals earlier in his career as well. Of course, on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, 
he had the, the whole album open with funeral for a friend mm-hmm. it, which which led into love lies bleeding that that is like one of the best moments in in all of elton's recorded career it's, it's like one of the coolest things and that's i was almost going to put that on my list as well but i thought nah it's it's a little too epic like i wanted to keep it a little bit simpler in some ways but that is absolutely something else that i would add into my list of things that i would would want to play for myself well i i love the educational aspect of this because i didn't know this and, and elton john's got a huge deep and vast catalog you know like stuff like tumbleweed connection and and you know songs that you may not have known about and and i love yeah. everybody who listens to the show knows that i'm a huge deep cuts person and you know you gotta dig through all of the the greatest hits to to get to sometimes some um, some equally good stuff it's, and so I, i'm glad yeah. that, i'm glad that you picked this good i'm glad i'm glad you didn't know it <laughs> no, That's I didn't. Awesome. I didn't. Um, but what i love too like you said like with, especially with a guy like elton like the deep cuts are the coolest for the, for the fans i guess that's true of any 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 musical act or any musical performer or whatever right like mm-hmm. there are things that not everybody knows but everybody who loves them will know you know what, what cracks me up is i'll sometimes post a piece of music on facebook like something that we all love like if you if you were listening to music in the 80s at some point you know and and we all loved certain types of music and so we all have these frames of reference and sometimes i'll post something that may not have been a huge hit specifically like maybe a band had other hits but i'll i'll pick like a deep cut and i'll post it and then People will sometimes people will comment and say, "Man, that band was really underrated." And I always feel like, if you love something, it's not you're underrated. Like, what? I don't even really understand what that exactly means in some ways, you know. But I think it's because I've always, at different points in my life, I loved music that may not have been like a quote unquote mainstream act. That was never the goal of loving music. Like, you discover music because it's good music. And if nobody else loved it, you didn't. I never cared. Like, I would think, man. That's like really cool because then that's sort of how you pick and choose your friends. Like if you talk to somebody and that's that's like one of the hallmarks of 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 a, of a friendship is like you mentioned a band and like if somebody goes, oh my god, I love that band, and then you're like instant friends. That's all that matters, right? Oh, totally. And you know what? To that end, I actually prefer that kind of music. You know, I, I I've never been I, I a big fan of the the popular kind of you know. I guess you'd call it rated stuff. <laughs> I just I yep, I like totally. stuff that kind of is under the radar. I will never forget the summer of 85 when Tears for Fears went to number one mm-hmm. on Casey Kasem's top 40. I kind of shed a tear. Why? I was so happy. I was so happy for them and so disappointed that the whole world knew how good Tears for Fears was. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, I, I remember I was in my car with my girlfriend listening to the countdown. Whatever night it was, it was maybe Sunday nights or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And I was so excited and proud that Tears for Fears were like, oh my God, America knows who Tears for Fears now, that knows who they are. How cool is that? But at the same time, I thought, man, the secret is out now. For we who knew who they were since the hurting in 1981, 82, mm-hmm. I guess it was early 82, you know, it had been years of like, this is our band. We own this music. Like, no, if you don't know who Tears for Fears are, then, you know, you don't know what you're missing, but you gotta, you gotta, gotta get into the program. But it was never about like just hitting the top of the charts. But I was realizing that the music that we loved, that was like sort of our music, was becoming the mainstream as well. And I mean, all these worlds were converging and I was super excited and super proud. But I remember that feeling of like, oh, now we have to share them with the whole world. But, you know, it's super super cool. But it's that thing of of calling something underrated in that way that I always thought was, was kind of funny. But this comes back to the deep cuts from artists who are superstars, that when you love a superstar, 
you love the deep cuts because it's not about the song that goes to the top of the charts. It's about the song that means even more to you because it's the song that they put on side two, like the middle of side two, because they, that was important to them, but they just wanted to get it all out there at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I love that point about, um, you know, being sad and happy at the same time for an artist that you held uh, in a very personal regard. And I, I remember going through that with Metallica, yeah. you know, Metallica was, oh, sure. people used to laugh at me for listening to Metallica. I, I wore the t-shirt to school when I was in high school one day and people were like, Oh, headbanger, like, come on, man. <laughs> right? And then, you know, one came out, but then the black album came out and people were so excited about like, you know, I don't nothing else matters. And, and what, but I felt like the band wasn't mine anymore. I was happy for them That's right. that they were so, Yep. warmly received but at the same time it was like oh the, the gig's up like they don't belong to me anymore now they're everyone's that's right it's exactly the same that's totally right and it's funny that you mentioned that because i on the other hand on the other side of shedding a tear from my band mm-hmm. i would feel a little bit of guilt falling in love with a band that i knew i'm basically jumping on the bandwagon for mm-hmm. and metallica is exactly one of those bands because <laughs> Ooh, when I, summer of 92, no, first I fell in love with Metallica. For me, I fell in love with them at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. Oh, okay. 91. That was, that was the day of awakening for me because that, that show sort of reawoke my rock and roll heart, which was like the same thing that happened to me watching the Taylor Hawkins tribute mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. So when the Freddie Mercury tribute concert happened, I was so sad because freddie had died and i was so excited that this was going to be this day of tribute to him and i i fell more deeply in love with extreme i already loved more than words from the year before but i wasn't a huge extreme fan but i was i was i was bit by bit going man these guys are really good i couldn't deny the the hit of more than words of course and um when they played when they opened the freddie concert i was like man these guys are amazing and then I fell in love with more with them at the end of the year when they released three sides to every story. And that album to me, that's the, the final side of that record is one of my favorite things of the 1990s. Oh, wow. Um, and, then, and then Metallica came out and played. And did they also play? I think they played Enter Sandman as well. I think they played Queen songs, but I think they started with Enter Sandman. I don't, Am I, wrong? I, I don't remember that. I don't know. I know they played Stone Cold Crazy because they covered that. They sure did. Yeah, they sure did. But, but, I then maybe maybe they didn't for some reason I feel like they played understand that maybe not but when when the black album came out and I remembered how good they were at the Freddie concert mm. and th- maybe just was that I heard entertainment on the radio and I loved it so then my association with Metallica was the, the Freddie concert and then I I was um, on the tour I was on the Phantom of the Opera tour and I was driving out to Calgary for the summer we were at the at the Calgary at the uh, what's the center called the theater that's there's one in Edmonton and there's one in Calgary and I can't remember the name now damn it because I played there with the spoons as well hmm. um uh, I'm very embarrassed for the listeners in Calgary and Edmonton <laughs> that I've forgotten the name but anyways I was driving out there to play to do Phantom and I was I, I was driving to my I had like a, a an apartment hotel like a first apartment and the day I arrived in Calgary Metallica were playing at the Saddledome oh are you kidding me? I so I, I got to my apartment, I unpacked my car, and I went right to the saddle dome and I got a ticket to the show. And I was an instant fan. But anyways, this is a another one of my endless long stories to say that when Metallica, <laughs> I I bought that Metallica, I listened to that Metallica album 
driving out to Calgary and I felt a little guilty because I thought, I know that I'm not a true Metallica fan. I never had a Metallica t-shirt, but I, I love the sound of this record because I am reawakening to the power of rock and roll. And this album is leading me back into it in that mm, way. Mm, so yeah, that, but the... that was a roundabout way <laughs> to get to, to your Metallica story. I hijacked your Metallica story for that reason. Wait, don't leave. There will be music. <laughs> That's <promise>. right. <laughs> It's not just going to be stories. Okay? That's right. <laughs> All right. Tell me about this last one here. A fifth of Beethoven by Walter Murphy. Don't tell me you don't know this piece of music. I probably do. It's not, but it's oh, a, a, yeah. a fifth of Beethoven, not Beethoven's fifth, right? What's the take on it? Oh, you are so cute, Brett. Okay. You're just <laughs> young enough. You are just young enough that the name doesn't just strike terror and fear into your heart because you know what this piece of music is. Mm, okay. Okay. It was on the soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever. Okay. And it was like, it went to the top of the pop charts in 1976. I totally know it. I hear it, right? Of course you do. Of course you do. Because it was a disco version of the fifth of Beethoven. And this guy, Walter Murphy, was the, he was, he was the arranger of the song. He was, it was his record. And I loved it so much when I was 11 years old because it was, again, it was like me discovering Gary Newman playing classical music. It was a, it was Beethoven on the pop charts mm. and it was crazy, crazy, crazy disco. And there was synthesizers and there was a clavinet and there was like an organ. And it was all the things that were coming into my mind when I was 11, when I was in a band already, I had my band Black Diamond and I was, I was listening to the radio, looking out for anything that had solo piano. And there were bits and pieces of, of like electronic music sneaking. And Gary Wright was on the radio with Dreamweaver. And Hall and Oates were on the radio with their electric pianos. And Queen, of course, there was one electric piano on a night of the opera. On John Deacon was playing You're My Best Friend on a, on a Wurlitzer. Mm-hmm. But a fifth of Beethoven was a, was a complete instrumental with just, it was like all about the keyboards. So I freaked out on this thing. So I had the sheet music for this. Never sounded as good when I played it on the piano because it was not all about the piano. It was kind of the band arrangement, you know, it was the groove with the with the with the rhythm section and stuff. But I loved it. So this this was on my list of instrumentals because again, this is a song like, man, I want to play this with a band. I think it would be so cool. Oh. And people, if you're old enough, you have to be old enough to appreciate it, or you have to be young enough to to like be an investigative listener and understand like how music like this was was not groundbreaking but just like a fun thing to hear you know ah okay so i gotta go back you know i'm gonna and be Walter, embarrassed when i hear this because I, I i totally know it. i just <laughs> yes, don't recognize the title you totally, yeah you yeah yeah you totally know it um <laughs> walter murphy also does music for family guy he's he does he like write writes lot like lots of music for different kinds of things he does. I don't know if he does soundtracks, but he does like a lot of TV music and, and scores and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's just a s- super cool guy. Do you remember uh, there were these things called Stars on Forty Five? Yes, totally. Stars on Forty Five. Oh yeah. And then there was then and then there was like a whole. I think they were actually made in Europe. They they came from Sweden. They, or, they or, did. They actually did come from Sweden. I just watched a really cool documentary on that. Oh, I need to see it. But basically, they put on the drum machine, and they would run through all the all the hits, right? Mm-hmm. So then there was the classical version of Stars on Forty Five, and then they would get really, really specific, and they would be like ABBA Stars on Forty Five, and the Beatles, and the Stevie Wonder Stars on Forty Five, mm-hmm. and they were all so cool. But I think what was cool that Walter Murphy 
and and other guys would do these sort of albums that were kind of the same where they would be disco classical records and they would they had to be a little more creative that they would have to do arrangements that weren't just based on the one beat kind of kind of threading through it all they would do each specific piece of music which i loved so, I, just th I think that's so funny i remember and i know this is now i'm thinking about it it's it's similar to stars on 45 and and i remember how much that blew people's minds when it came out <laughs> do you remember that yeah like, especially totally. the beatles ones because it was like a beatles medley and like you said basically somebody just pushed play on the drum machine and just ran through all the melodies yeah. right? it was like oh my god it's but then like they a... had it but they had a guy who sounded just like them like the sound of them was really good right the uh the abba one is fantastic as well like mm -hmm. of course abba we're already in the disco world so you could put on a beat and you could cover a pretty good number of abba hits with one beat you right. know yeah. which was pretty fun but they got girls that sounded just like them and you're and if it, if they were actually made in sweden that makes sense because the girls had the sound of of Frida and Agneta, where they didn't like English was their second language. So they, they would pronounce the words in kind of a funny way, but they had that same kind of, there was a Nordic quality to their voices. That was so perfect. They mm -hmm. sounded just like the girls in ABBA. Bonus points for knowing the names of the females in ABBA. Oh, come on. Me? <laughs> you know me. <laughs> I, do. I, I certainly do. <laughs> I met Frida one time at the opening of mom. She came to the opening of Mamma Mia in Toronto in 2000. So oh, wow. I met her for for like a hot second and I got her to sign my ABBA box set cover. So, yep. Wow. That's cool. She's, yeah, she's rock royalty. I never got to meet Agneta though, but oh well. Which one is which? The blonde or the, the brunette? Agneta is the blonde and Frida yeah. is the brunette. Okay. Who also went through other awkward hair colors in the 80s. She got, she had like those good kind of weird red hair colors as well. You know, there was, it was like a trendy thing for ladies in Europe to explain to experiment with these henna kind of colors and Frida went for all of them and I loved it because she you know I sometimes I look back at pictures of myself from the 80s and I'm like man those some of those hairstyles but then it was what it, what it was you know you, you just you it, kind of went in the moment and you went for it you got to embrace that stuff man it, it was it was the it was the 80s and it was it was the time fully embrace yep it. and I think and ABBA went through it in a, in a much bigger way than I ever had to. Thank God. <laughs> but, you know, they, li they lived through those pictures and the girls went through. I mean, Agneta really never changed her hair color because she was a beautiful blonde. But Frida went through colors and perms and headbands and no headbands. And wow. Man, oh, man. I did not you know lived, that. You lived through it. But, but thank God the music kind of rises above it all. When you're just listening and not looking, thank God, you know, the music survived. Oh, absolutely. And continues to. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, and likely will. ABBA is a force, you know? And we know, I mean, we haven't talked about it because we haven't revealed all the details of, of our collaborative project, mm -hmm. but there will of course be, be ABBA songs involved because their, their music was such a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. Like for, for 15 years of my life, that was like my main thing was, was I was a res I was a responsible for making their songs come to life eight times a week on the Broadway. That's right. So how can I not include their music? Exactly. One of the many, many cool surprises that we have in store for <laughs> yeah. fans of Rob Proust. Ladies and gentlemen, That's right. you are going to dig this. <laughs> get your tickets as soon as this thing launches because <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. So that, that wraps up, uh, your song list here. Um, I am very, very appreciative to be part of this and I'm super excited and I can't wait to, uh, to get it rolling. I am excited too. 
yeah, we've been doing Zoom calls to kind of piece this thing together. So I think we should probably schedule another one for next week, if that's cool with you. Yeah, for sure. We should also, um, I'll, I know, I love when you post these, these episodes and then I love to, to, um, share a Spotify playlist as well. And I think this one is, I think the one that I said to you is already public as well. So I'll post it. If you want to include it when you post it, totally do it. It would yeah. be great. Okay. I will do that. I need those. Um, nice. I, you should send over those, uh, selfies that you took from the Elma combo too. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Totally. You know, it's so funny. Like what a whirlwind weekend today's right like i've got pictures to go through from from the elma combo show as well but like i have i've i drove home yesterday and like got up really early in the morning and drove and i and i have taken so many pictures like since the weekend and have not really looked at any of them but i will absolutely send them to you today (laughs) all right awesome well i'll use that in the promotion of the show oh good yeah it'll be fun yeah okay man well listen thank you so much Always fun. You are welcome. Always, always, always. Are you, fun fade, are you, you. fading in the music now? Not quite yet. Okay, I'm gonna wait because I was. That's my favorite moment when you're like, and there, thank you, and then there it comes. This has been No Sleep Till Sunbreak with Brent Jensen. Is that the part you're talking about? Yep. Just before. All right. So let's do that right now. <laughs> you're gonna cut. Okay. All right. Are you? <laughs> I've never really done this before. <laughs> this is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have anything else to say? I always do, but I'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I think it's funny. It's good. This is like like when you watch a TV show and they say, we'll, we'll fix this in post, and then they just don't fix it, and then that's always the best part. We're going we're gonna to leave a little bit of it in for sure. Yeah. All right. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very, very, very special guest, Mr. Rob Pruce. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>